The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. This is John Howard, and I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Paul Mitchell who is an expert on redistricting and on political strategy and on data and kind of all things uh, with Political Data Inc. and also with uh, redistricting partners. Yeah. And so we wanted to ask uh, Paul today, chat about the new redistricting commission and how it's shaping up what you're seeing from the first uh, round of picks, round of applications, and what we might expect in the future. Yeah, happy to chat about it. And thanks for having me. It's uh... It's an exciting time because it's, you know, uh, like redistricting is coming. And uh, uh, it's, it's something that I think a lot of us have been looking forward to and, and kind of planning on for quite a while. So seeing these procedural steps kind of get completed has been, uh, has been kind of exciting for a lot of us. So, um, you know, this process of getting to actually selecting the first commissioners um, it's been a long process and most people haven't been paying attention, but they had, you know, the initial uh, applications. Um, then they kind of narrowed those down and got uh, people to f do supplemental applications, which included like a little essay thing. Um, and then they narrowed those down and went through a series of, of steps to basically send to the legislature 60 applicants that they selected as being the most qualified and tried to create like diversity there and tried to create kind of a, um, a balance of applicants. Uh, in fact, the 60 applicants were split up evenly Democrat, Republican, and no party uh, or not Democrat, Republican. And uh, the legislature's job was then to cut the list down even further. And they do this process where it's kind of shrouded in secrecy a little bit because they're not releasing like who, you know, uh, who eliminated who in the pool. But they each of the legislative leaders has the opportunity to make six strikes. And uh, when they were done, the job was to return to the commission or to the uh, auditor a pool of 12 people from each of the partisan buckets. And... They did remove, you know, the 24 uh, individuals from the pool. And then actually, like, even as they were finishing up, one of the applicants dropped out. So, in fact, they submitted to the auditor's office, instead of submitting 36, they submitted 35. Missing one of the Democratic positions was, was empty because the applicant had dropped out. Um, and from there, they did this, like, kind of funny, you know... Uh, Bingo, bingo ball style uh, selection where they uh, individually within each pool went and selected uh, the first eight commissioners out of three Democrats, three Republicans, and two that were unaffiliated with either the two major political parties. And that's where we get this first So eight. the auditors, hey, Paul, the auditor's selection then is at random, right? That final, we come up with the eight commissioners in a random pick. Is, is that right? Yeah, I By mean, the it's, it's, I always describe it as almost like shoots and ladders because you have this process of, you know, 
just the general application and then the culling down and the request for supplemental applications and then the culling down and then this selection of buckets um, from the auditors. Then it introduces this political step where the elected officials get to narrow the list a little bit. Then it introduces this random step, which is literally bouncing balls and, and picking numbers. And then the final step is these last eight get to go and select the remaining six commissioners. So that is kind of a balancing step. It's trying to make up for the randomness and maybe oddities of a random selection and allow those eight commissioners to kind of backfill the final 14-member commission with the kind of diversity they need in terms of skill sets, in terms of geography, in terms of ethnicity or gender, to try to make a final commission of 14 people that is, um, you know, going to be effective at being able to perform this function. It's, it's a really interesting balance between, you know, a, one set of criteria that's mostly about competence, another set of criteria that just is completely random, and then a third set of criteria that introduces explicitly kind of a, a balancing based on those, you know, skill set, gender, ethnicity, um, geography kind of uh, means. And it's unlike, you know, in Michigan, in Michigan, they did a, re a commission process where they uh, got all the applicants, did no testing of qualifications, essentially, uh, just threw them all in, in a thing and randomly drew. So you could have had people who they were randomly drawing from a pool that was created to be more balanced by those kind of things like gender, ethnicity, and uh, geography, but, uh, but literally it was just all random draw. You know, it's amazing to me, you know, you know I'll look at this and what's amazing is uh, the level of work and the role, the important role that the auditor, auditor's office plays in this whole thing. Yeah. They go through the first round of raw applications and this time, uh, I think they wound up, their first cut was about 10,300. It might have been a little more because I know they extended, I think Elaine Howell extended by 10 days the application period. So they got thousands and thousands of applications and they go through that with interviews. I mean, they interview, I don't know if they interview everybody. <clears throat> but they they interviewed a, in person 120 applicants. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, they started amazing. with, I mean, yeah, just, I mean, it's, it is amazing. It was a lot of work, and you can actually go back and watch these interviews of interviews with those 120 applicants. And they did this during a COVID era too, so there was a well, lot you of. You can watch them. Just, yeah, they were all public hearings. Where, like, are these on YouTube or something? They were on the auditor's site at the time, and I'm presume they're they're oh, stored okay. there. Um, but we were watching a lot of. That's these. That's right. The selection prog uh, this the final selection process. I think the um, the three pools of 20 each: the Dems, the Reaps, and the No Party Preference. I think that was done, uh, it was open to the public, that selection was open, and the final mm -hmm. eight, I think, was videotaped and also, uh, you know, broadcast, or at least made available. I think yeah, we got to watch the bouncy ball site. part of it. It was really interesting during that, and, and <laughs> it was as we were watching it, um, we were sitting there, and it was like, okay, the first pool, no Latinos, the second pool, no Latinos, it was like, oh my gosh, there's going to be no Latinos, and that was, I think, the big headline out of this is that even though the commission uh, or the, the auditor's office tried to get kind of good gender diversity in the pools, um, you know, I think something around 20% of the final applicants were uh, Latino. 
um, about 27% of the applicants that were sent to the legislature from the auditor's office were Latino. Um, unfortunately, the legislature cut, um, about a quarter of the applicants the legislature cut were Latinos. And that meant the Interesting. The now, there's a, there's a story waiting to be written. Yeah, well, I don't, know, I don't think anybody knows right now who cut who. But there was some cutting of the list. But if you're listening and you want to leak that to us, please call in. <laughs> yeah, email that to John. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't have my yeah, I don't have my fingerprints on that. But the um, uh, the you know the final pool and the math was um, I think somebody with I, I think Jonathan Stein, who's with uh, Common Cause, put this out. Um, that the math was that it was a 90% chance that a Latino would get selected given how they were represented in the overall pool and kind of the randomness of it. And uh, the fact that none of them were selected was really shocking. Um, and then immediately you saw stuff with... Um, uh, first, it was Kevin DeLeon, I think, tweeting that... All the remaining six commissioners should be Latino in order to get the right share of the commission being Latino. Uh, then Jimmy Gomez, Congressman Jimmy Gomez, retweeted that and called for the same thing. Um, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the commission to these first eight to select from the remaining six, kind of as many as Latinos as they can. There's also other discrepancies that are interesting. Um, you know, the among the Asian group, uh, the two candidates that were selected, one was identified themselves as Asian Indian, and the other one identified themselves as other Asian group. And as we understand it, there's, there's not an Asian representative from, you know, the Southeast Asian or Chinese or Japanese or Korean or Filipino populations that are really prevalent in California. And that might be something that they try to do in terms of balancing um, but they were represented. It's interesting. They were represented yeah. in the 35 names or so yeah. that the legislature sent to the auditor. They were in that, they were in that pool. Yeah. So they, the, you know, they went, the auditors then went through that pool and came up with none of them. I, nobody's suggesting that there's, you know, anything wrong with the way they did it. Right. It's just because it's random. Yeah, it's really, it really is random. So what is funny in terms of that, the geography, you've got um, essentially an even split, Northern California, Southern California, four and four. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, three of them are from L.A. Um, and one is from the Inland Empire. And then the others are from two from the Bay Area and two from the Central Valley. What's funny is the two from the Central Valley are both from San Joaquin. One is from Stockton, one's from Tracy. Paul, what do they mean by coastal? <clears throat> you know, when they say region, um, for there's southern co- three, in fact, that I'm looking at right now are uh, southern coastal, one central coastal. Uh, is coastal actually, is that a coastal county? Los Angeles is identified, for example, as... Um, well, if they're, ca- I haven't seen that. Yeah, I haven't seen that categorization, but there's three from L.A. County, and the L.A. County ones, one is from La Cunada, um, the other two, uh, one is kind of like near USC, and the other one's like North Hollywood, uh, Toluca Lake area. So they're from L.A. County, but they're all kind of, you know, 
there's nobody from Long Beach, nobody from, you know, the coast or the South Bay. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, it's, it is kind of, it's not necessarily geographically distributed within LA County. Uh, the Central Valley ones, they're both from um, San Joaquin, but, um, but, you know, one is from Stockton's, the other's from Tracy. Um, so they're both from northern, the northern Central Valley. They're not from Bakersfield or, or Fresno or something like that. Um, the, uh, and is there any kind of a breakdown where they, they require that someone be from the rural areas of California, or is that just not... It does say yeah. geographic diversity. So, yeah, you could have that be one of the kind of criterias. You do have one of the commissioners is from um, San Bernardino County. Um, so kind of an Inland Empire representative. But it does tie into, like, if you wanted to game out who the next six are going to be, it's kind of easy to see a path for who that commission is going to select to be the remainder. They clearly have to select Latinos. They can't pick six Latinos because there's only one Latino in the independent pool and they need to pick two from each category. Two Democrats, two Independents, two Republicans. So they could pick two Latino Republicans. There are two and only two Latino Republicans in, the, um, in, in that pool. And so they could pick both of them. That's kind of a clear, uh, I'd say even highly likely that that's going to happen. So there's no requirement to, to pick some pro-Trump and then some never-Trumper Republicans? Well, I don't think that, that they, no, I don't think that they have that kind of insight. Um, um, but they have, so you have two potential Latino Republicans. They could pick both of those. You have one independent, uh, I'm sorry, two, yeah, two Latino Republicans, one Latino independent. I think it's almost guaranteed that they pick that guy. Um, but if they pick all three of those, the, all three of those are from Northern California. And so now they've introduced like this geographic diversity issue. So as they pick the remaining two Democratic representatives, I think they're going to have to pick those from Southern California. Um, so you've got one Democratic woman from Escondido, um, who I think would be very likely. And then you have two Latino Democrats in L.A. County, and both of them could be considered likely. One of them... This guy, Michael Jenico, is a former, or he's still involved in, like, police reform. Um, he was, uh, I think, the, he was, like, the chief counsel for one of that independent review panel for uh, L.A. County. So he's got this, I think, a really interesting backstory. Um, so he'd be pretty likely. And the people, if you look at those remaining uh, applicants, they selected three African-Americans in the first selection. So I think that in the remaining pool, they're probably not going to pick a, an African-American. They're probably not going to pick a white applicant. I think that there's a possibility they could pick a, a, an, another Asian, or I think a good likelihood they would pick another Asian applicant. Um, among those Asian applicants, they've got, uh, I think, one in the uh, independent pool, and they have a couple they can pick from the Democratic pools. Uh, Paul, are the, are the first eight commissioners uh, limited in their picks to the pools that have already been vetted? Uh -huh, to the they're limited. That have already they can been only vetted, go back they... to that remaining 30, that 35 list that they were once on. They can only go back to those. Uh -huh, okay. They can't pull somebody out, you know. It'd be kind of cool if they could, yeah. right? They could just randomly select somebody. Yeah. 
Willie Brown is our next uh, commissioner. Here's just a logistical question, though. Um, just on a, they could pick you, John. They could. I'm waiting for my call. Uh, why 14? Why not 13 or 15? It just seems to me that you, I mean, what are the chances of ties here? Conventionally, boards and advisory commissions and, you know, boards of supervisors. I mean, conventionally, they have an, an odd number in order to prevent the notion of ties. But this doesn't have it by specifically by statute and by, you know, policy. We, this is not. This is set up that way to have an even number. Does that make a difference at all in the final outcome? Well, yeah, and the actual rules for the commission are that they have to have these super majorities for, um, for voting on the plans. So it isn't just like 50%. You can't pass a plan that doesn't have, you know, votes coming from each of the partisan buckets, as an example. So you could, like, let's say you had uh, in your four, final 14-member plan or 14-member commission, you have your five Democrats, your five Republicans, and your four independents, you could have a vote of 10 to 4, and it still loses if it doesn't have one of its votes from the independent group. So all five Democrats, all five Republicans vote for something, and one of the independent, and not one of the independents, then you don't get that thing passed. The same thing's true that you could have a 9 to 5 vote that would fail because it was five Democrats and four independents and all the Republicans voted against it. It would fail. So it is, uh -huh. it, 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 I get what you're saying. Like often we have these odd number um, panels in order to make sure that there's not some kind of like tie. But in this circumstance, they're trying to get kind of supermajority votes on everything anyway. When will we find out um, uh, the next six? When will we find out who these they haven't scheduled are going to select? Yeah, they haven't scheduled their next hearing, but I think the deadline is August 15th that they have to get this thing done by. So um, we should, I would expect that we're going to see some kind of announcement from them as to when they're going to be having any kind of meetings or deliberations on it. Um, that is something that should be a public, you know, you should be able to log in and watch the first eight do that. Uh-huh. Um, and it'll be interesting to see the, the conversation and it'll be interesting to see how expressly they weight these different criteria. You know, one we haven't talked about is kind of that skill set criteria. And in the last commission, you had somebody who used to work at the census department. You had people who worked in, people who worked in outreach and people who worked in organizing. You had people who had more administrative background and could therefore be really good at helping with the hiring of staff and people who had more legal background. So you have this skill set element that, you know, I don't think uh, anybody's really dived into yet. This commission that was seated so far does have kind of an interesting and wide range of skill sets. Um, I think one of the most interesting ones is there's one of the applicants from the one from San Bernardino County, uh, J. Ray Kennedy. Uh, he has worked as a, a, an elections official in, like an international elections official. He was, in fact, uh, oversaw or did something helping manage elections in Sudan with the UN. Um, I mean, he, he's got an amazing kind of background for this. Um, but then you also have people who have been in academics. 
Um, you have people who, uh, you know, have done nonprofit work and, you know, even done data work, uh, which has been interesting. But this one of the applicants did data work for um, health programs. So, you know, it's it's a wide skill set, but they might like go through these and they might look at the applicants and say, well, hey, this one applicant has worked like we saw in 2011, like with the census. And so they want to kind of dig into that. So that'll be another criteria that they look at. Did, did you find it interesting um, in, the, in the main pool of applicants after the, um, the auditor had gone through thousands of these, but the statistics that, that the state posted were about six out of 10 were males and about four out of 10 were females. And yet women uh, have an edge in voting registration very, very narrowly, or at least in parity with males, and yet their application, the application ratio of women to men, they were quite low uh, compared to males. Is there any takeaway from that? Is, or is that, what do you think about that? I mean, you might need a psychologist for that. Um, the psyche of different okay. uh, genders, you know. <laughs> we'll bring, do you have a Dr. psychologist Mitchell, in your okay. office right now you can bring in? Um, yeah, I mean, Five uh, the, you know, I don't know what we would necessarily attribute to it. I think in the last commission, in fact, what's interesting is I think some of the women on the commission were the most powerful voices, um, uh, on kind of both sides of the commission process. There were some kind of geographic conflicts happening. There were some conflicts happening over the drawing of certain districts, particularly the African-American districts in L.A. Um, and where those conflicts happened, it was oftentimes uh, the women on the commission who were the most vocal and uh, honestly the most effective uh, commissioners. Um, and uh, But we'll see with this next commission how that plays out and the roles that different individuals play. Uh, in terms of the applicant pool, it might just be, you know, yeah, Maybe it's just the psyche of men. Is there any breakdown uh, requirement for members of the LGBTQ community? It is. So we actually did a letter um, with uh, Equality California and a number of different groups encouraging them to, uh, to, to look at LGBTQ as one of the communities of interest uh, when doing this. And in fact, it is expressly in the the auditors, uh, the regulations that the auditor has for the purposes of making these selections that, um, that they consider diversity in all the things that it means, including uh, people who are representative of the LGBTQ community. And I think those in the LGBTQ community were very happy with this initial selection. In fact, two of the um, commissioners are LGBTQ and one from the Democratic pool, one from the independent pool. And that can be something that's really important, especially here in California. In 2011, California really broke ground by expressly stating in open commission meetings that they were going to use the LGBTQ population as a community of interest. And there were several instances where we would we had supplied them with data from a coalition of LGBTQ organizations, both in California and nationally, um, and worked on identifying using census data and their data where the densities were. 
and they repeatedly brought up during, during the map drawing process these heat maps of where the LGBTQ population was and attempted at, at times to you know, draw lines in order to kind of maximize the voting representation of those populations, whether they were in San Jose or in Sacramento or in San Diego, where there's historic LGBTQ uh, uh, city council seat down there. Um, and, you know, the, the work of the commission around that community of interest was very powerful, not only in the state redistricting, but it also trickled down to local redistricting, even here in Sacramento. Um, and uh, I think that's going to be a wave nationally uh, this coming cycle, especially after the recent Supreme Court hearing, which offered these LGBTQ protections in employment to, um, uh, you know, it was kind of surprising and, and great Supreme Court decision. Um, but it will, I think, that decision will have an impact in redistricting too because it will bolster the arguments of the LGBTQ population that they should be considered as a community of interest in all redistricting whether it's Houston City Council or legislative districts in Louisiana or a congressional district in Utah. Um, there's identifiable uh, LGBTQ populations that meet all the criteria that you would lay out in the Voting Rights Act in terms of being a protected class. They are identifiable, they vote in patterns, there's been historic um, uh, use of anti-LGBT messaging and political campaigns. I mean, you can go down the list to say the value that, that would be had in, in using the LGBTQ community as a community of interest. And, and so having two of the commissioners in the first state be LGBTQ is, I think, um, a very powerful step in that. There's only one other applicant in that last pool of 35 who's LGBTQ. I don't think it's likely that he'll be selected um, because, uh, essentially because of the, the, uh, um, ethnic diversity that I think the commission is going to be focusing on, uh, for the, the selection of the remaining six, but, um, he's from the San Diego area. He, he would be an, uh, an awesome, uh, commissioner. Uh, but, you know, having two of the three, uh, would be, you know, it's just really powerful. And you said that, uh, there's already two LGBTQ commissioners so far yeah so that would be two of 14 would probably you know i don't know the exact numbers but i suspect oh that would be over represented i think yeah than, yeah yeah no i think it's great representation. Hey, paul you've appeared before uh paul you've appeared before the commission uh, uh you know on behalf of clients or to provide information yeah. or whatever so what what is that process like you walk in the door sit down at a table and they grill you uh do you have a prepared <laughs> statement with Pitches you know, and try to, how's that work? There's a number of different ways. So um, generally when I've gone before the commission to uh, present information or when people who've been working for me or for my clients have gone before the commission, you're only really afforded like a five minute, you know, uh, um, you know, time slot. There are opportunities sometimes like when Maldef in 2011 presented their big statewide plan they were given like a 30 minute time slot at uh, their hearing in Northridge um, to prevent, present like an overall legislative and congressional redistricting plans. And so there have been instances like that. So there might be instances like that with this coming cycle where let's say a, a client like the LGBT community that we've worked with before 
and are looking to work with again, if they did have kind of a larger set of recommendations around whole map options that we might be afforded like a real time slot. But in most cases, it's just a five minute, you know, public comment period. And you usually would go up. Sometimes you would uh, provide written material and you would just use your five minutes to describe written material. Sometimes you would provide maps. Um, and one time with that LGBTQ data, we did a five minute public comment and provided a flash drive with a statewide database uh, that identified every census block in the state and its ranking in the data we had built on its LGBT strength and provided that to the commission. So, and in a couple instances, our time presenting would be extended because commissioners would have questions or we would kind of have a little bit of a dialogue. But we were trying to be very respectful of the overall process in 2011. And I presume that we'll do the same this time. Um, and there's it, the influencing of the commission process. It's kind of like a big city or it's, it's like a it's like a it's like a city council in terms of, you know, being approachable and just being, you know, human beings that you want to do a good job and they're not overly political. They're not, you know, they don't treat themselves like judges or kings. They treat themselves like kind of an approachable public agency. Um, they have a huge job, but that the the kind of work to try to influence the commission process is just like if you were trying to go to the local city council and help get an ordinance passed for like a hillside protecting the hillside or opening a dog park like that that is essentially the process and how it's mirrored um you know kind of compared to what we see in other advocacy before local governance so um yeah it's pretty pretty straightforward pretty simple there are other ways also yeah. to do they do a traveling Oh, they did, yeah. Do they do a traveling roadshow kind of thing? Kind of like the census people did where they would go into, I don't know, a dozen or two dozen communities and talk to the locals and get their sense? Or is it, you know, is it more local? Is it more, uh, you know, everything, all power flows from Sacramento kind of thing? Or do they actually go out there? So in 2011, um, they set really ambitious goals for how many outreach hearings they were going to have and where they were going to go and and, you know, and I think almost they were probably too ambitious, the goals that they had set. And in fact, I think they were too ambitious because they never really were able to complete everything that they wanted to in 2011. Um, and so this commission will probably kind of get trained up by the old commission and probably get some advice from them about how to balance um, the desire to get out and do a lot of engagement locally um, and... Uh, the need to literally just get the job done. Um, the other thing that will be a complicating factor will be COVID. I mean, I don't think anybody believes that uh, we're going to be completely out of the woods, um, you know, uh, anytime soon. And so these hearings that they're having to select the next six, I presume those are going to be done remotely. Um, the, I mean, the commissioners might show up in a room or some of the commissioners might show up in a room, but... Um, even in 2021, if we're not, if we don't have a, everything under control with COVID, um, it's very likely that they would kind of forego those, a lot of those regional meetings, or maybe only do regional meetings once yeah. the environment has changed significantly. Um, so we'll see how it 
Do they have draft out. maps, by the way? Are we, I would mean, we be able to see? I have a draft map in my back pocket. I, I, I've, been, I've been drafting the maps this whole time. I mean, I'm just waiting for them. I'm kidding. <laughs> does, does the commission post a work in progress? Kind yeah, of thing? so... Do they, uh, here's what we're looking at. Here's what we've developed so far, uh, which would give a ample opportunity for a lot of people to sort of weigh in if they don't like the maps, or if they do like the maps, but... Yeah. The last commission had this plan to do three drafts, and so they had a ton of hearings before drawing maps and that's what they'll do again this time those hearings before they actually draw maps are about where are the communities of interest and how do you view your um you know how do you identify and view your community of interest how do you map your community of interest what are the what are the considerations we should have in this redistricting those kind of open-ended pre-map drawing uh hearings are extremely important in kind of setting the stage then they'll provide maps like they did in 2011 and have hearings that are more specific to the maps that have been drawn. I find in all the redistricting that we've done, especially a lot of local government, the best hearings are the ones before you've drawn maps because as soon as you draw maps, then all of a sudden you're not having conversations as much about communities and and kind of what to do. You're having conversations about um, lines and you're having conversations about uh, it, it narrows the conversation a lot once you have the maps, but it's an important part. The last commission wanted to do three draft maps. They did two sets of draft maps and then kind of ran out of time. And that second draft map with some changes got ended up being the final map. Um, this commission will have to determine, you know, exactly the process they want to follow. A part of it will be complicated by the fact that we don't know when the census data is going to be coming out. The census has requested a four-month delay, but Congress hasn't approved that or passed that yet. So, you know, it's really, I think, to be determined how late that data comes. And the later the data comes, the more I would expect to see these pre-draft map conversations. And the later the data comes, I think the shorter the window is going to be for the public to kind of have have input on kind of multiple rounds of draft maps that are done. Well, as it stands now, what's the timeline for the final maps to be approved and then, you know, put in place uh, for the following year's elections, for the 2022 election? Well, you'll love this, but uh, the census is saying right now that they want to have until July 31st to release the data. And as it stands, the commission's job per the U.S. Constitution or the, the U.S. Constitution, per the California Constitution, is August 15th. So right now, as it stands, the commission would have two weeks from the release of the data to finish the data, finish the lines. That's not going to happen. Um, they are going to have to do something to um, either through the courts or through legislation with a constitutional amendment or through some agreement with the U.S. Census um, make sure that they have more than two weeks to draw those lines. So that could take form in uh, a court saying, okay, that constitutional deadline can be moved. Um, the legislature trying to get something up as a constitutional amendment uh, that the voters would pass in November to extend the deadline and probably with a host of other things that are kind of COVID-related deadline changes in the Constitution. And um, Could they push back the primary? They will probably push back the primary. 
and that will allow them more time, but they still have to change the date in order to do that. They can't just push back the primary and automatically change the date. They'll probably push back the primary anyway. I think that was probably going to happen even before COVID. Um, and then the other option is making a deal with, with the census department that yes, we'll extend the deadline, but, uh, in extending the deadline, any states that have constitutional requirements, they get their data first. So essentially try to say, okay, well, we'll extend the deadline, but you know, let's say California and Michigan and Arizona and Oregon and some other handful of states have like constitutional deadlines as to when the maps have to be passed. Well, those states get moved to the front of the line. Um, that might be the way the compromise happens, but something's going to happen because as it stands, to use your language, uh, it's not possible to do the statewide redistricting, um, you know, it, well or completely or fully informed with public input uh, if they're only going to have two weeks. Well, this might be more of a census question than a, a redistricting commission question, but uh, standing back for a second, what do you think the chances are we lose a seat? I know we've talked about this before, but it still strikes me. It's real interesting to me. We, is there an option for us? Uh, is there a possibility we lose a seat, even more than a seat, maybe two seats? Is that out there? I'm talking about yeah, congressional so seats now. I think it's possible that we lose a seat, and I think it's likely that we lose a seat and go down to 52 members of Congress. Um, uh-huh. The way that I've described it is we're about... We're about 20%, 10% away from regaining that seat back. If we had had 50,000 more people, we would regain our, our 53rd seat. So we're basically on like the 10-yard line or the 20-yard line of getting our 53rd seat back. Right now, as we stand, we should be at 52 seats. So that would be a loss of one. But we're also 80 yards away from uh, going to 51 seats. So... Um, it's possible that we could make that ground in the, in the, in a complete count with the work California's done and the legislature and secretary of state's office and, and governor's office have put into getting a complete count in California could pay off and maybe we get our 53rd seat back. Um, it could happen that combination of low response rates from, um, certain minority communities and lower income minority communities specifically and um, the COVID concern and the inability to get out people in the field that that could end up costing us so much that we lose another seat and go down to 51 but I think it's unlikely in fact if they were to stop the census now California does have slightly better response rates than some of the other states like Texas who are in a position to gain a bunch of seats um we could do better um, just because other states do worse than we do in the census process, you know, specifically Texas. Uh, Paul, one last question. If um, after the seats or uh, excuse me, the districts are approved, are we looking at a, a long round of legal court challenges of some sort? Uh, is this all going to wind up in the courts anyway? Or do you think this will be when we get the 14 commissioners, we get the maps uh, that that pretty much is the end of it? Um, I think both are true. Um, so I think that if they, one thing in particular, if they move the date and move the primary, part of the thing that they're thinking is that they want to make sure that they have a window um, after the approval of the maps and before the primary or before the filing deadline 
to afford, you know, time for lawsuits and lawyers and any legal challenges to the plans to be resolved. Um, uh, the last commission's plans held up under all legal scrutiny. You know, they passed back then. We had the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that meant that they had to have preclearance for the Department of Justice, and they got that. Um, so they were successful even though they faced a bunch of lawsuits. That could happen this time. I expect that's what happens this time, is that the commission work will be um, finalized. There will be a dozen or half a dozen lawsuits about random stuff, and that the commission work will end up being upheld. I... Um, yeah, I, I don't expect that they're going to uh, be in a position where their their work is going to be undone by the courts. Great. Well, on that happy note, uh, we'll say, Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. And of course. Thanks for enlightening us, as always. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Hey, thanks, John. And this is John Howard saying we'll see you next time around. Thanks all. All right, thank you.